Hey listeners, and welcome to the final episode of this season of Climate Ready. It's been an amazing journey and we can't wait until season 3. Ingrid and I are incredibly grateful and humbled to be part of this, and we want to send a big thanks to all of you for continuing to tune in. But we're not done yet. We've got another great episode in store for you just ahead. That's right, Alex. And before we dive into talking about this episode, I just want to echo your thanks to all of the brilliant folks we've been able to interview over the last two seasons, to everyone who submitted a postcard for our Postcards from the Future series, and most especially to our listeners. It's been a great first two seasons, and we're looking forward to bringing you more great interviews in 2019. But before that, let's start talking about our final episode of the season. Uh, where we take a deep dive into the topic of resilience. And this is a thread that's had certainly some connection to pretty much all of our earlier episodes, but today we're really going to kind of focus on it. And who better to bring into this discussion than someone from the Global Resilience Partnership? Dr. Nate Matthews will be joining us as we try to address some important and timely questions around the principles underlying resilience the evolution of donors and aid groups in an era of climate change, and the GRP's ideas behind Failure Fest. So stay tuned. Stick around following the interview for a new and very heartfelt take on our Postcards from the Future segment. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter using at ClimateReadyPod and to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy! The Climate Ready Podcast is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an informal network for water resources adaptation to climate change, focused on supporting experts, decision makers, and institutions within the water community to find common solutions for sustainable water resources management. The podcast is made possible by funding from the World Bank Group. For more on the World Bank and its role in supporting climate adaptation efforts, visit www.worldbank.org. Today on Climate Ready, we're joined by a very exciting guest and a good friend of Agua's, Dr. Nate Matthews. Nate is the Program Director at Global Resilience Partnership, where he provides oversight and leadership into GRP's challenge competitions and projects, while also overseeing a number of technical work streams. Before joining the GRP, Nate served as Global Research Coordinator at the CGIAR Research Program on Water, Land, and Ecosystems, in addition to earlier work with UNESCO, CUE, the World Bank, and more. Nate, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Nate, before we dive too deep into the world of resilience, I think it would be good to give our listeners who aren't familiar with your organization a bit of a background on the Global Resilience Partnership and the work being done there. Can you tell us a little bit more about your organization and kind of just a quick and dirty history and its main goals? Sure. So GRP is a partnership of public and private organizations joining forces towards a sustainable and prosperous future, specifically focused on vulnerable people and places. And we believe that resilience underpins sustainable development in an increasingly unpredictable world. We were launched in 2014 at the African Leader Summit by President Obama with an aim to really transform both a development and humanitarian spaces on, on the way business is done or development and humanitarian aid are delivered. We work across a number of streams. So we have a number of grants that we've given out uh, in the past across the Sahel Horn of Africa, South and Southeast Asia. And those grants are designed to surface innovative solutions 
to resilience challenges on the ground to build resilience. We do a lot of work in policy, in engaging policymakers and bringing resilience to the policy table. Um, and that's across governments, business, and also working with communities to deliver their or to bring their voice to policy fora. We do a lot of work across the monitoring, evaluation, and learning space as well to help lead on how best to measure, uh, evaluate, and learn from resilience practice. And we also have an incubator hub and a, a scaling component where we take the projects that have demonstrated potential for scale from our investments and put those through an incubator and an investment hub to really find ways to scale them out further and, and demonstrate their full potential. And it sounds like there's a lot going on within GRP, all working towards this goal of a more resilient, sustainable, and prosperous future. So you have all these different work streams, provision of grants, and policy work as well. As far as you know, tangible efforts to catalyze these goals and turn them into action, what are some of the programs and activities that you all coordinate? In terms of programs, we've done two open and competitive calls in terms of investments on the ground. The first was a general resilience call, which was opened up in 2015, and that has 12 investments on the ground. And those investments are very diverse. So we have work on agroecology in the Sahel, for example, which is working on building out the sustainable intensification of agriculture for smallholder farmers there. We have work with ICT projects. For example, we work with IBM, specifically the Weather Channel, and Airtel in Uganda, where we're delivering up-to-date weather forecasts to about 8 million Airtel subscribers across Uganda. We have work with trader groups in northern Kenya, bringing together a consortium of male and female farmers and livestock traders to access Sharia-compliant credit through uh, relief assistance. So that actually helps them to not just adapt or persist through droughts, but actually thrive in the face of increasing droughts and uncertain weather. And these are, by the way, I should mention, all, all these projects are implemented through partners. So a lot of that work there that I just mentioned is funded through USAID. And we received a, a $10 million investment from Zurich Insurance to build flood resilience. And we have a number of projects in there, 12 in total, that work on everything from floating homes in Bangladesh and Vietnam to early warning systems in Nepal and uh, improving roads to be more resilient and capture flood water and runoff in Bangladesh and Ethiopia. A lot going on <laughs> with you guys. Yeah. Yes, uh, that's only scraping the surface, really, but yeah. that's a bit of a taste. No, I'm sure, I'm sure. Before we move on and talk more about the different types of organizations that you guys are partnering with and the work that you're doing on the ground, I want to just take a bit of a step back and do some definition work because on this podcast, we talk a lot about the concept of resilience, and certainly we've already thrown that term around you know, multiple times in this episode as well. So I just want to step back and get a sense for how GRP defines the term. Can you go into that a little bit? Absolutely. So we're very aware of the multiple definitions of resilience, and we actually make a point not to define it. As we have so many other diverse partners who all have their own working definitions of resilience, what we instead chose as a way forward was to set a set of principles that we ask all our partners to subscribe to. And those principles, you know, very simply, without getting into the, the long definition, they're embracing complexity. So just really recognizing that political, economic, ecological, and social systems are deeply intertwined. Recognizing constant change. So that's a big part of the 
volatility, uncertainty, and unpredictability that we're dealing with today. So recognizing that you need to develop projects within that and work within that environment. Enabling inclusive decision-making, which is self-explanatory. Enhancing ecosystem integrity. So one thing we subscribe to is that healthy ecosystems are fundamental for healthy societies and healthy economies. So we need to enhance and really work with the biosphere. Promoting flexibility and learning. So it's something that we've really learned, especially from our programming experience and, and these large investments in resilience, that there's these rigid and fixed solutions do not build resilience or change. So we really need to be adaptive and responsive to a, a constantly changing environment to work within this world of uncertainty. And then finally, leveraging innovation and opportunity. We want to seek and surface innovation. And to get to innovation, we recognize you have to take risk. And if you're going to take risk, then you have to recognize that failure is a real possibility. So we're really encouraging projects to take those risks and to be okay with failure and to fail fast and to fail smart. So that's a key part of how we look at resilience. That's great. I really like what you said on a number of fronts. To begin with, that GRP, you all work with so many different organizations and you have to, I guess, just acknowledge that all of them have their own versions of what they see resilience to look like. But you say... We can all work together so long as we embrace these guiding principles instead of this strict one or two sentence definition of resilience, because that's going to set yourself up for failure. But I wonder, is it a challenge to operationalize a concept with an evolving and varying definition when it comes to implementing resilience-based projects on the ground, either in terms of defining success or otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a challenge. And I actually think the challenge is less so on finding the metrics of success. I think we can find those quite easily. So I think there's ways to measure resilience that are very quite qualitative. But the challenge that we have is that we work with a number of large donor organizations and we're funded by those organizations. And their systems are set up in a way that they work very much off a of cost-benefit analysis of and they're looking for a much more quantitative measurement of success. And, you know, we can report across, for example, our 22 grants at the moment that we've benefited over 5 million people. But how those benefits are accruing and being maintained over the long term, we don't know yet. So it's easy to really demonstrate, I think, for us, success and measurement that fits into the existing systems and what they demand, but whether those are really the proper metrics for measuring resilience is, a, I think, a point to discuss and needs more debate. We've talked about some of the grants that you all are doing, but maybe bigger picture, there are some other donor organizations in play here. And it seems like donor organizations and aid agencies, they're trying to come up with ways to evolve by incorporating aspects of both climate adaptation into these traditional systems that they already have in place in their efforts in sustainable development and poverty reduction. How is the GRP working with these groups to come up with new standards for sustainable development that encompass climate change adaptation and resilience? I think one of the key things that we're doing in that space, well, one is to demonstrate the value of a resilience approach. So showing how it actually is different from perhaps good development. And one way to do that is really a translation of science to policy, to practice that pathway. And one of our key learning partners and our host, the Stockholm Resilience Center, is one of the world leaders on resilience science. And so we work closely with them and other knowledge brokers and knowledge providers to really say, okay, here's the science behind resilience. 
here's the practice of what we're doing on the ground. And then here we then try to translate that into policy. And by policy, again, I, I mean not just government policy, but policy of organizations and of businesses. And we can do that with credibility because we've invested the money on the ground and we've learned lessons from that. But we're also working you know, specifically with partner organizations on some of their guidelines. So, for example, we've had opportunities to review the new UN guidelines on resilience, which are being developed by UNDP. We work closely with you know, other partners like SILS and EGAD and others on what they're doing on resilience and really try to guide that to fit and to also make sure or ensure that resilience has substance within those spaces. It's not just used as a buzzword and, and just to label what might be good development. Throw the word resilience in this project title and get an extra 10% bonus, maybe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm wondering if these agencies, DFID or you know, UNDP, these are huge organizations. They've been around for a long time. They understand that changes need to be made, I assume. I'm just curious if you found them to be receptive to this. I think that's the best way to sum it up, is that they recognize that development isn't really delivering at the pace of change that's needed. They recognize that the world is also really changing and that we have moved into this world of uncertainty and that the past ways that projects were implemented and programs were delivered are really no longer applicable and the right fit for the current situation we have. And that, you know, that speaks to the changes we're seeing across the climate, but it also speaks to the broader social economic changes and the sort of intertwined nature of politics, economics, and ecosystems today. So there is a lot of demand. And, and what we're getting from aid agencies and partners is them coming to us and saying, you know, how can we work within this new environment? What's the best way to work within this new environment? And we see resilience as not the silver bullet here by any means. I think it's really important, but we see it as, as an important approach, but not you know the be all and end all approach. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm wondering if just for our listeners' sake, if you could think of a type of development project that would have been funded maybe like 10 years ago and thought of as successful adaptation, but the types of projects maybe that we're moving away from. It's a tough one. I think what you would see maybe even 10, 15 years ago in terms of adaptation projects is you'd see perhaps a development project that comes in and gives farmers, for example, some drought resistant seeds because they want to prepare for the next drought. And that's the project that goes in and, you know, maybe there was uh, lots of good intention behind it and there was a gender component to it, but it, it stops there. And with resilience, I guess what we're trying to do now is to try to think, well, First, we want people to, at a minimum, is systems and people to persist within the face of change. And then adapt is sort of the next step. But the third step is what we're really interested in, and that's the transformation. Yeah. So how do we actually get people to move beyond just a passive adaptation to a drought, which might be through drought-resistant seeds, into somewhere where they can actually thrive within the face of change? And that very much requires a systems approach. As I mentioned before, it's about building in components of redundancy. It's about, you know, a reassessment of markets and maybe actually even changing a crop completely instead of just thinking about drought resistant seeds or even perhaps changing what they're doing. What are the options, the livelihood options? What are the whole systems component? Are the ecosystems protected? All of that within that kind of project. That's the way I would like to see things shift. And it's not always the way. And sometimes it's not actually even the way that's right. You know, sometimes the right solution is maybe a very simple application like adaptation. 
in some ways, GRP is in the same situation as Agua in the sense that you're working a lot both with donor groups and with the people that are putting these policies into practice on the ground, the NGOs and the practitioners. Have you been able to, in your work, observe some trends as far as maybe what are the biggest areas of divergence between these two groups, the donor groups and the practitioners, and maybe what are some of the biggest areas of consensus? I think within our partners, we see a lot of areas of convergence and and consensus. And I think that's because, well, I mean, I guess they've come to us and they've joined us as partners because they subscribe to, you know, a belief in the same challenges that we do and a belief in resilience as an approach. One of the challenges, I guess, I'm not sure if it's an area of divergent, but I, I would say just to slightly adjust the question, I think one of the biggest challenges for both groups is working with the private sector. And I think that, you know, it's something that we're really trying to do is to develop innovative public-private partnerships. But it's really hard because a lot of the systems that are set up within NGOs and even within donor groups aren't set up to work with the private sector. And they're sort of speaking different languages and they take very different approaches. I would say that's a real challenge for both groups, but it's an essential one to overcome, at least in my opinion, because when we talk about the billions of dollars invested in resilience, that's not going to be enough to change the systems and really allow people to thrive and allow ecosystems to thrive as well within this world of uncertainty. And what's really needed is access to the private sector investments and funding. And if we could find a way to demonstrate the evidence for the private sector to be increasingly involved and find innovative ways for business cases to build resilience, then we'll make some big impact. Awesome. So I just want to shift gears just a little bit. A lot of our listeners work on ecosystem or water issues, and we haven't really touched on that so much. And so I just wanted to get a question in thinking about ensuring healthy ecosystems. At Agua, you know, we talk a lot about how Freshwater fundamentally underpins our ability as humans and our ecosystems to continue to persist. So without resilient freshwater systems, there's no hope for any sort of ecosystem or community resilience in the long term. So I'm curious, are any of your projects focused at all on resilient water management practices? Does that come into play at all? It's something that we think about all the time. And my early background in my career was all on water management. Yeah, that's what I did my PhD on, and, and it's something that I'm very passionate about. And really thinking about where we're going to focus in the future with GRP as we move forward this year and with the big buildup to the you know, Secretary's General Summit, GRP is going to focus on the intersection of water and food security, peace and stability, and disaster risk reduction. So we'll increasingly see more attention within the Global Resilience Partnership paid to resilient freshwater systems. But it, it is already there as well. It's not to say that we've been neglecting it. In terms of the projects that we work with, a lot of them work with farmers. When we think about water, I mean, obviously that's where up to 90, 92% of the world's water is used is in farming systems. So that's a big part of it. But we also have, as I mentioned, a $10 million investment from Zurich Insurance on building flood resilience. And some of that is working on coastal resilience and important benefits that ripple out to source water protection. I guess I would just also add, we do some work with connecting roads, water, and livelihoods for resilience, where we're redesigning road systems to capture stormwater runoff and actually reduce the impact of flooding and heavy rainfall events on roads. So although we don't have any really specific projects at the moment on freshwater resilience that are the headline of the project, a lot of our projects are linked to that. And healthy ecosystems are something that's critical that runs through all our projects. I think that's really important to highlight too, because for us as well, 
we don't need everything to be a water project, but water management just needs to be embedded in all of these other projects, whether they're on agriculture, whether they're on coastal resilience, these sorts of things, making sure that those considerations are included there. So that's really great to hear. And to close with, I'm wondering, Nate, if we can draw from all this experience at GRP, you all have been around for over four years and have dozens of projects going on, have invested millions to drive innovation. And I'm wondering if there are any broader lessons that you all have learned in terms of ways that we can improve both our projects and our funding institutions in order to do resilience better. I think it goes back to some of our principles, but it's also a few things I didn't mention. So again, I reiterate the importance of adaptability and agility within programming. And I know that's quite difficult for many organizations and also for donors, but I think it's really critical and increasingly critical. And we see the real value of that on the ground. I would say another one is that resilience building is definitely not gender neutral. Focusing on women and, and having a gender component of resilience, we found to be really important. So we really focus on empowering local communities, but especially women to take charge and really bringing those bottom-up approaches to the work we do. The third one, I guess, would be really finding ways to engage the private sector, especially if we want to get out of that funding cycle and the reliance of projects on funding cycles. And then second, last one would be the focus on innovation and recognizing that failure is something to be learned from. You know, I've managed hundreds of development projects over my career, and you know, I, I don't think any of them really have ever reported failure. And of course, that's not true, right, but you just, right. everything in your mindset and work is to, when you receive funding, is to report success with that funding. And that doesn't allow us to learn. And we have a failure fest with our projects, for example, where we actually bring them out and we talk about failure openly with the donors in the room. And the project leaders have found that really rewarding and important. So in addition to our focus moving forward on water and food security, disaster risk reduction, and peace and stability, we are seeking partners to work with us on that. So if you're interested in joining GRP, I would just like to emphasize that you know, there's no joining fee, and please take a look on our website on the Join Us page. Thanks very much. That's great. Well, Nate, thank you so much for joining us today. I think it's really great to learn a little bit more about the Global Resilience Partnership and what you all are doing, because I think it's really cutting edge and important work in this area. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks again, Nate. It was a good conversation. I really enjoyed it. Oh, man, I really like talking to Nate. He brought up so many good points throughout the conversation. To start, you know, I really appreciate that GRP doesn't try to come up with one single rigid definition for resilience, but instead focuses on the underlying principles that make up a resilient system. They recognize the complexity of the concept and the fact that both their funders and implementing partners may prioritize different areas of resilience, and that is absolutely fine. I was also encouraged to hear how funders and aid agencies are evolving with the times, you know, I think for some of us, we feel like maybe evolving a little slower than we would like, but, but they're really grappling um, with the challenges of our times and realizing that resilience is a great approach to development and adaptation, you know, even if it's not, quote unquote, a silver bullet. Another step on this road towards resilience involves almost embracing failure for its value as a learning tool. When your focus is on innovation like theirs, you're bound to have some misses with projects. The trick is to convince funders and donors that failure isn't something that needs to be hidden. It has value in and of itself. And just as important of a lesson is finding ways to engage with the private sector to leverage that stream of finance. 
turning the billions already going into development into the trillions we'll need for the widespread systemic changes that would allow for people on the planet to thrive. Those are just a few ways that a resilience-based approach is pushing the envelope. So before we wrap up today, we've got another postcard from the future. And this one's a little bit different. It comes from Dr. Raha Hakim Davar. She is a great friend of Agua and also a hydrologist with the U.S. Forest Service. I first heard Raha's story when she read it at World Water Week last year uh, in Stockholm, and I, I knew at the time that I really wanted to get her to record it so that we could feature it on our podcast. So I don't want to say too much more about it, but I hope you enjoy. What I'll share is not so much a postcard from the future as it is a poem of the present reminiscent of the past. A river runs through my city. Have you heard of it? It's a famous city, or at least it once was. There are famous bridges crossing that river, the one in my city. There have been songs written about this river and its famous bridges in my famous city. Maybe you've heard of them. It's long been the admiration of poets and philosophers and engineers alike. People used to travel from faraway lands just to get a glimpse of this river in my famous city. And when destiny uprooted me to a new home, far away from the city with the famous river and the famous bridges, I took solace in my memories of that river, the river that gives life, the Zayan Derud. Visions of my father resting his head on one of the 33 arches of the Siosepol, looking out at that beautiful river flowing through the city that he loved, the city that we left. Families picnicking and sipping tea nearby on hot summer nights, children playing, their screams of joy annoying the lovebirds nearby fighting for their privacy in the dark. Men stealing a moment of peace in the early morning hours on their way to work, sitting on the steps of the Polakhaju, the Khaju bridge looking out. The echoing sound of old songs being projected through the acoustics of the bridge's arches at dusk, through the voices of men past their prime, reminiscing of life in a finer time. Arches perfectly constructed to keep and share centuries-long stories and secrets in song. All of this exists because of the river I speak of, the Zayanderud, the river that gives life. But for too long now, those famous bridges crossing that famous river have become obsolete. The river I speak of, the one crossing my city, is no longer a river at all. It is completely dry. The birds and fish that used to be there are long gone, replaced by standing puddles of sludge and that particular smell of life still trying to survive. So when the river that gives life no longer does, what are we to do? Do we change its name? What has happened, you ask? Weren't the Persians the ones that invented the Ghanats? Weren't they the revered engineers of their time? I suppose my ancestors could not have imagined the world with so many children of their children and so much competition for that precious resource that helped build their empires at the time. They could not have imagined their reservoirs being so parched. Yet maybe it's a consequence of the persistent drought. Maybe it's the fault of a management system that is corrupt. And so we say, God willing, the water will come back. But what if God is not willing? What do we do then? What can we do then? Isfahan Nisvijahan. Isfahan is half the world, the poets and the philosophers, the famous ones would say. Well, if half the world is contained in my famous city, as they say, then is half the world suffering the same fate? 
And what happens if one day we no longer have the features that inspire our poems, our stories, and our next generation of poets and philosophers and engineers alike? What happens if we no longer have the rivers that give life? And what happens if the world no longer knows that famous river in my famous city because it is no longer there? A longer version of this poem was shared at this year's Stockholm World Water Week during the closing of the session, Achieving the UNFCCC and SDG Goals Through Water Management, a UNFCCC Talanoa Dialogue. A summary of the session and transcript of the poem can be found on the UNFCCC Talanoa Dialogues portal. I'd like to talk about what inspired the writing of this poem. Growing up, my father used to tell me stories about the Zayanderud, which is in our hometown of Esfahan, the third largest city in Iran and the historic former capital of the Persian Empire. My father would tell me about how he used to go fishing in the river. He used to go swimming with his friends. He even told me about kids that got caught in the undercurrents and some of them drowned. These stories are now unimaginable to me as that part of the river that crosses Esfahan has pretty much been dry for the past several years. You can actually walk across it. It's hard to overstate the importance of the Zayanderud to Esfahan, not just as a resource for the city, but as a central part of the city's cultural fabric, its identity. If you Google Esfahan right now, almost half of the images that will pop up are of the Zayanderud and the historic bridges that span it the oldest of which was built in 5th century AD during the Safavie dynasty. So part of what inspired me to write the poem is that I'm saddened by the fact that I will likely not be able to tell my children the same stories that my father told me. In a rapidly changing world, when rivers like the one that used to run through my city disappear, we're not just losing sources of water for drinking, sanitation, agriculture, industry, and energy. Those are things that we can quantify, we can build hydrological models around. We're also losing culture, we're losing history, we're losing our stories. Those are things that are much more difficult to model and quantify, but I believe are much simpler to build mutual understanding around. And I look to the day when we'll have a book of poetry about every river and lake that will become required reading for every engineering student. That's a wrap for this episode and for season two of the Climate Ready podcast. We'll be back again before you know it with another season full of insight and expertise around the intersection of climate and water. Thanks again to our earlier guest, Dr. Nate Matthews, and to Dr. Raha Hakimdavar for sharing her story as our postcard from the future. Until next time, everyone. Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.